Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's cornhole season and the bags just keep flying. Your Minnesota Timber Beasts would love to see you in the crowd cheering on their crazy corn-throwing capacity. The next big event is this weekend against the scourge of southern Wisconsin, the Beloit Bagpiper. And it's Cob Hat Night. That's right. The first 200 fans in attendance will be given corn cob hats. The hats are oversized replicas of a full ear of corn, emblazoned with the Timber Beasts logo right on the cob. The Timber Beasts are having another amazing year and would love to have you cheering for them in the front row. Come out and help your Timber Beasts get that corn airborne. What more could you want? Cob Hat Night this weekend and all the air mailing you can stand against our southern Wisconsin competition, the Beloit Bagpipers. Join the Timber Beasts this weekend and howl your support for the home team. Pro League Cornhole Fever. Catch it. From the glow of St. Paul's number one, Welcome to another edition of Cabin Country. Give us the time and we'll take you out of the traffic and away from the levee. Let's find the place where the loons call out among the moonlit waves, where the wind sighs among the Norway pines. Pull up a dock chair, have a sip of your coffee, and get a line in the water. This is Cabin Country. Now here's Bjorn Lloydstead, and I'm Fudd Klugman with another Woodland Escape. Well, hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Cabin Country, and we are glad to have you join us again tonight, and uh, we are honored tonight with someone as a guest, um, kind enough to join us, I like to refer to as sort of a Cabin Country Renaissance man, Captain Dave Stricker, uh, you've heard him mentioned many times on the podcast, uh, he is, among other things, a licensed Great Lakes captain, he can he can take you out on the big water for the right price, uh, just kidding, of course, uh, spent a number of years uh, building homes up in and around the kind of the, the Duluth area, the Hermantown area. And, uh, on top of that, he's also a sitting board member on the aforementioned Minnesota Commercial Fishing Museum, yes. um, which, which we featured prominently in our episode, The Old Man and Gitchigumi, which was... That's right, with Helmer Akvik. Story of Helmer Akvik. Yeah, sure. Captain, you were kind of the, the lead-in to that uh, how, how did that information come about that you were made aware of it and decided to pass that on to Cabin Country? Well, I've always been intrigued by anything of kind of uh, old North Shore-ish. Right. But also um, how folks really made their way uh, even before Highway 61 became a thing. I mean, when it was first dirt. Right. Uh, there's an author by the name of Marlon Breed, mm-hmm. and he decided to describe... He called it this old man who had gone out to save Carl, the younger fisherman. He shouldn't have gone out. I just was uh, absolutely captured. One thing led to another, and um, the internet being as it is, I ended up stumbling on the North Shore Commercial Fishing Museum. They have some really uh, captivating pictures. He was probably close to 90 when they took some of his, his photos. The recording that uh, you guys featured was probably when he was maybe 80, do you think? Maybe Sounds Smith's about right, set. yeah. He's, he, was, he was an older gentleman, that's for sure. Yeah, that story was particularly compelling, especially since he ended up with uh, with an award 
which I, I don't know if you picked this up in the recording, but he didn't think much of, of the awards or letters that he received. People went crazy or nothing. You remember the take where he talked about how he just kept putting the these letters he'd received in an old beer case. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know what to do with them. I just yeah, he didn't oh, know what to do one. with them. Since they came from people he didn't really know, that was probably even of less value. So. Right, right. Well, and I love the fact that he was saying he was opening these letters and there was money in them. You know, sometimes a <laughs> dollar, sometimes five dollars, sometimes two dollars. <laughs> yeah. They were sending me money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed, Elmer. You saved, went out to try to save somebody's life in, in crazy weather. And I love that bit uh, from, from the interviews where I think the host says, well, how far out were you, Helmer? I mean, how far did the lake take you? And he, he made it sound like somewhere between 25 and 50 miles out to shore, offshore. And then and then the current started bringing him back because his, his engines froze over. And his hands what? hands and feet were darn near frozen. And, uh, I'll tell you where go. Yeah, the, that's a neat part of that story where he actually ended up dumping both motors into the lake because of the weight savings. Yeah. As a result of all the ice building. But what uh, what I thought was was kind of funny is they the Coast Guard finally tried to uh, get his skiff. It roped his skiff, kind of lassoed it, and then um, as a result, ended up sinking it. They tried to lasso the skiff, you see, to tow it. <laughs> Lost it. Is so I said, right? "Yeah, I said, forget it." <laughs> ended up sinking it. And do you recall the part where? Yeah, said, well, that was just a result of the lack of seamanship. <laughs> From the Coast Guard, of all people. <laughs> From the Coast Guard. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, so- but another an interesting part of uh, when his, he kind of knew his life was coming to a close, he died of bone cancer at 90. Okay. And um, what was kind of interesting was he kind of took it, and this is what's so enduring about um, those families, not necessarily just the men, but those families, as you probably noticed when they talked to Christine in that recording, yeah, um, those folks were, they're tried and true grit, but I think even more compelling was this idea that uh, they kind of took life as it came. They accepted life as much as they did death. Mm-hmm. And um, what was also interesting was he had a local craftsman put together a pine box for his casket. Okay. The story is that they, um, he had a compass, kind of a, a compass rose put on the top. Yeah. And he actually had a keel put on the bottom. Wow. And, really? Yep. He said um, then he would be able to chart a course after death. Wow. Oh, so it was uh, kind of this idea that he was already at home and there's uh, the story goes that he actually slept in it from time to time to make sure it fit okay. <laughs> <laughs> Helmer, get out of your casket. We got work to yeah. do here. Come on, get out there and mow the lawn. Yeah, I, wow. I loved hearing Christine in the background and well, correcting him. Yeah, at one no, point, no, 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 that was so and so. Well, at one point on. they're talking about um, Tillamook uh, or something. Yeah, and first of all, I think the the interviewer was saying Tillamark, or he, that's what he thought Helmer was saying Tillamark. But in the background, you hear Christine. Tillamook. Oh, Talamook, M-O-O-K. And I think about that every time I go to the store and see a brand called Tillamook Cheese. Every time I see it, I'm thinking of Christine. Not Tillamook, Tillamook. Tillamook, Oregon, the the high school team or the cheesemakers. I got to know that through a fellow fellow teacher who grew up in Oregon. It's uh, it's very close to the Pacific, but they're they're proud of their cheesemaking. He was out there fishing for... uh, Halibut, I think, right? We're doing halibut boats and salmon boats, things like that. On the West Coast. Talked, to, talked about that one voyage he went out there and they were fishing off the, the North Pacific and how all, some of these vintage, you know, well-seasoned Norse fishermen were just getting sick. Oh, they yeah. couldn't stand it. And they, oh, boy, they were, as soon as they got back to land, that was it. They were done. And they were like, wow. <laughs> Helmer didn't bat an eye, you know? No. That was great stuff. So they turned, they turned to farming. <laughs> right. Lovers at heart, without yeah. a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. So, so what, what are you doing right now with the Commercial Fishing Museum, David, and all this, uh, 
hullabaloo. What's 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 the status right now? What's what's going on with the commercial fishing museum? Well, um, what's been exciting about the North Shore Commercial Fishing Museum is the fact that as soon as this came on at the beginning of the summer, we thought for sure that, you know, there would be no tourism whatsoever. People right. were just going to be shut down. Staying which, home. Yeah. Yeah. It, which you, both of you probably noticed too, or at least have read that that tourism business is booming because everybody's sticking close so right, right. Um, they had almost a thousand visitors over the summer we also put out a, a letter to some folks that have been longtime members and uh, received some really generous support because of the well the stories that place can generate and actually kind of preserve and knowing that a lot of the families up there so for example uh, I happened to go up there during a lighting ceremony of the Split Rock Lighthouse. Okay, yeah, yeah. November 10th each year. Okay. Or the thinking of the Edwin Fitz. Right. And if you haven't ever got a chance, it's certainly worth it. And there's um, video available this year's. And it's almost, ex- it's exactly the same. I mean, they probably read off of laminated sheets. But sure. to be honest, it's uh, the hearing the chiming of the bell with each one of uh, the subsequent 29 souls being red. Wow. And with the backdrop of the lighthouse, as the sun slowly goes down and you can hear the lake in the background, it's hmm. not only haunting, but it makes me missed up every time. It's, sure. it's, it's pretty amazing. But um, uh, what I learned through the, the, North Shore, the North Shore Commercial Fishing Museum was you have to be careful how you talk about that event meaning the uh, sinking of the Edmund Fitz, because there are families, uh, if you look at where the the origin of some of those sailors that went down on the Fitz, a number of those families were uh, from that region. So you'll see Hugh Harbors, you'll see Schroeder, you'll see Silver Bay, um, Tofty, so on and so forth. They're still pretty sensitive. I bet. Uh, which I didn't know. I thought that would be kind of a kind of a, some folklore, which it is to a certain extent, but it also hits so tremendously close to home. And if you look at some of the, the folks that were on the fits, those were lots of young working men right. that died in their prime. So right. I guess, you know, it, it's the kind of perspective that that place really brings. But uh, it also brings out folks that um, really appreciate that old school North Shore feeling for example, one of the board members is Greg Tofty. He's one of the members of uh, the Tofty family that founded the area. So, and I, I got to speak with Greg and, and work with him, and he can spin tales like you wouldn't believe. They're so authentic. It's stuff that you won't see when you go to a, you know, the typical tourist spots mm-hmm. when you're up mm-hmm. there. So, tales about watching his father and watching relatives and friends going out on the lake as Helmer would would talk about the, the smoke going 40 feet high. The lake smokes. Oh, 30, 40 feet high. And um, the idea that um, going out and uh, none of the fishermen back then ever bothered to learn how to swim. They they knew that um, once they were in the lake, they were done for anyway. So what's right. the point? Right. <laughs> and the treachery of that kind of work where people would get a foot caught in the net as they threw it and the other fishermen in the boat would watch them go down, uh, down to the depths. And there are stories where these two fishermen got caught uh, in some wind coming off of the shore, which was pretty typical. As a matter of fact, it's pretty similar to what Helmer got caught in, where it's coming from the northwest as opposed to the northeast Mm -hmm. and blowing people out into the shipping channel, for example. And um, back then, what would typically happen would be those folks that are in those 18-foot skiffs would get blown clear across the lake to the south shore of the Apostle Islands. Um, But uh, in those days, it was fully expected that they would never, ever be seen again. A story was relayed to me where these two fishermen that were relatively young uh, knew that that was probably going to be their fate. However, they wanted their bodies to be found. Okay. And they strapped themselves into the boat and then subsequently drifted, were blown clear across the lake. And I think 
The story goes that he lent, they ended up at Devil's Island, which is kind of one of the northernmost right, right. Uh, ends of the Apostles. And their bodies were actually found. But what makes the story so interesting to think about is, you know, what kind of conversations that those two fishermen have right. as they commenced <laughs> strapping themselves down in the boat and, uh, and going off to their end. But it, it's not all dark. What's even more beautiful about some of the stories, and I'll kind of start off as we used Helmer as kind of a reference point, but um, they talked, he, would, he was asked about uh, what he thought about it and how he felt about uh, being out on the lake in the middle of those large waves in the middle of the night. And um, you might recall him saying that, There was a nice scenery there at night. The moon was so beautiful. <laughs> All the violent nature going on, he really saw through and um, appreciated his surroundings. And there's stories about children of the fishermen would get in what they called gas boats. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to uh, these sailing boats that they used to have, and this is more of kind of the Isle Royal nature, what happened would they they load up. Um, they usually started work pre-dawn, so kind of four-ish in the morning. And the kids would ride on top of this box that was set on top of a motor that essentially was in the middle of an open boat, an open skin. And the kids kind of wax so lovingly about falling asleep on top of the wooden box while they go across this flat glass like superior that's half orange and half pink on their way to get out of the water. So it really does kind of conjure up, you can almost kind of smell the, the, the two-stroke gas exhaust and, <laughs> and the smell of the water that I think is unique to that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's kind of that, that beauty, but also the tragedy that's so attractive to it. Thinking back to what you're talking about with the two gentlemen who got blown across to the apostles and strapped themselves in, I'm like, you know, I mean, you and I together have, have been around a lot of those Apostle Islands on sailboats, and I keep thinking, well, there's people everywhere. I mean, how could you not say, well, we're going to get saved here? Back then, probably not. You know, there's nobody out there. And Did, did, did you get uh, to the bottom of how those two guys met their end, strapped into that boat? I mean, was it just the elements froze them to death, or, or what happened? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's too cold. They they were basically washed up on shore. Somebody found them, you know, strapped into their skiff. Oh wow! Probably yeah. hy- died of hypothermia. I'm guessing is right. Right. Wow. Well, it yeah, lots of amazing stories coming out of that rather inauspicious little building alongside the highway there, and, and I think that's on 61. Am I right? I'm not it sure. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, going up north, right in downtown. Downtown, top. yeah, right across from the smoked fish shop and the gas station. So, right. yeah, right. outstanding. Well, I just remember thinking how cool it was to see all the trappings of those fishermen from, from the early days. The, the big, you know, the cotton nets that have been woven and the, the glass balls that might might hold them up at certain times and the weights they would put in, the glass weights as well. And then eventually it was, I think, things like lead. They were weighing down the, the nets with lead. And I that and the, the those great old, you know, ripcord kind of Johnson outboards and everything they had, it just really... Yeah, everything exposed, too. Flywheel. Oh, everything, yeah. If There's what, certain motors that they actually had to light... A modest little fire under <laughs> in the boat <laughs> yeah. to get running, to warm oh, yeah. things up so they could get the get the engine running. That's a great story. In a wooden boat, light the little fire. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and hope the boat doesn't go Viking funeral on you. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there they go. <laughs> She's ablaze. <laughs> wow. Good knowing them. Yeah. Well, a fun a fun place to be sure, and it's still hale and hearty and running. The museum's up and up and running. And... It is. There's, I think, there's so much heritage up there. It's, you know, what's unique about that place is it's modeled after a fish house. Right. So that architecture is designed after a fish house that used to be there not long ago. There, oddly enough, was a gas station there. Okay. And um, once that kind of went belly up, there was enough momentum and that on the North Shore, and particularly that kind of Tofty area, 
to say we really need, you know, there's so much heritage attached to, you know, Great Lakes commercial fishing and all the way up to Isle Royal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really storied history too about going back to the heydays of the 1930s where these kind of boons of lake trout, these huge lake trout and people spending entire summers, generations of summers on Isle Royal Silvertson has a gallery up there, and he's actually, uh, when I say up there, I mean Grand Marais, but many of his paintings that he does, and he's a terrific painter that'll paint almost exclusively Isle Royal because that's where his father fished out of, but also down the shore. Um, All of his paintings are actually depictions of scenes out of stories that actually occurred. Those are just great when you... When you see those, those are they're beautiful to look at, but that's even a little bit more depth, knowing that there's such a great story to each one of those paintings. Behind so, every painting, a story, yeah. If you've yeah. got the time, he'd maybe sit down and tell you about it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, would too. Well, why don't we take a short break and warm up our coffees while Engineer Don queues up a Cabin Country sponsor or two. But don't go away, we've got more great stories and anecdotes from Cap'n Dave Stricker. Cracklin' Jack Pines has always offered you the finest in Northwoods fare. Grilled to your satisfaction, Cracklin' Jack's continues to offer you the opportunity to be the chef, to grill your own choice cuts in our indoor grill room. The best things never change. This weekend, a new offering is on the menu at the Cracklin' Jack Pines. It's turtle chowder time at Cracklin' Jack's. We've been blessed with a king's ransom and choice snapping turtle, and the myriad of meats that a snapper boasts are lovingly crafted into the Mid-South favorite that we're hoping becomes a cabin country favorite, Turtle Chowder Time is here. The best cuts of the turtle are slow-cooked with mirepoix and a special seasoning mix until meltingly tender. And then a bevy of vegetables and more spices are added to a reddish-gold broth, thickened with roux and just a hint of tomato and Worcestershire sauce. The chowder is allowed to slow simmer until you're ready to order a dinner-sized serving, or perhaps just a tasty cup of chowder that will accompany your elk backstraps hot off our grill room grates. And of course, a shaker of sherry will accompany your chowder to the table, along with plenty of oyster crackers, or if you'd rather, plenty of bread for dipping. Many have thought, turtle chowder? I believe I've missed that train. Well, the time to catch that train is now. Cracklin' Jack Pine's turtle chowder is a short-time offering. Make sure you join us amidst the knotty pine as soon as you can, and enjoy a bowl or a cup of Cracklin' Jack's turtle chowder with your hearty Woodlands meal. Whether you're grilling your double-cut North Country Berkshire pork chop, or you're grilling your own whitetail ribeye, you'll be glad you did. The Cracklin' Jack Pines, Cabin Country's exclusive supper club that offers you a full menu of meaty favorites, hot off the grill or out of the fryer. One of the few Northwoods supper clubs that offers you the opportunity to use our room-sized wood-fired grill so that you can be the chef. And another reminder that Cracklin' Jack's will set you up with salads, sides, and potatoes done to your liking if you choose to grill your own meat. Join us tonight, and don't miss out on this month's special offer. Turtle Chowder. And now, on with the show. I read in uh, on DNR site, there's now a grand total of 25 licensed commercial fishermen on the lake. Or I should say fisher people, it could be, could be anybody. Um, but that's that's a very low number, thinking back to the 1930s with people filling boxes full of Cisco's and getting a dollar a box or whatever, sending them off. Or during the yeah. war, during World War II, it was it was uh, in World War One, both wars, it was a it was a very viable means of income because people were catching fish to send off to the the, the troops. Um, right. Uh, where are they now? You know, I mean, do you, do any of these folks come in and and talk with you all at the museum or? Is there word out there about like, oh, this guy or this woman, or they're they're still fishing this stretch yeah. of water? Or? There's a new generation. As a matter of fact, that we have an annual fisherman's dinner every October. Okay. And we, we have uh, one of the one of the fishermen uh, along the shore come and speak, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting too because there's always this worry. You know, you have uh, these these Norwegian fishermen. <laughs> you want them to come and speak in front of a crowd, which seems to be 
<laughs> Not really a reasonable expectation. Right. Rather daunting for these folks. Right, yeah. right. It's, it's not really their business. Right. But uh, what we what uh, what the museums discovered over time is uh, they have such a cache of stories to tell. Once they you know they have maybe a fellow fisherman or somebody they know in the audience that they can kind of go back and forth with. Right. Before you know it, the seal's broken and out come the stories. <laughs> it's just a wonderful event. And like I said, they they have more to tell than they give themselves credit for oftentimes. And it has such a local flavor to it where they can speak to certain points or reefs or trends in fishing or talk about the currents in the, in the lake being so powerful where... For example, in the summer, the currents are strong enough where there are times where they can't pull their nets up. Right. It's, it's mm. tugging it hard. Right. And uh, there's other stories where, uh, as a matter of fact, I just was turned on to a, a fisherman named Stephen Dahl. He's a current commercial fisherman out of Knife River. And he supplies a lot of the local fish, particularly herring, almost exclusively herring to restaurants such as the Scenic Cafe, uh, a lot of the local restaurants. And um, he talks about his the local food demand. It's so significant where he'll catch what he can and he doesn't have to worry about selling it. He'll, he'll, he'll call the local restaurants and say, hey, I've got 20 pounds or I've got 150 pounds. And they'll say, I'll take it. Right. I even bought his book. His, his book is uh, named Knife island circling a year in a herring skiff <laughs> and what's kind of fun about this is he actually holds a graduate degree and was in human services for some time he describes himself as a as a person that was burnt out uh, as a human services worker <laughs> no and come on now no yeah right and then now uh he lives along the uh, old north shore road just north of duluth uh, maybe just a touch south of two harbors and he keeps uh, his skiff. It's an 18-foot aluminum skiff at the Knife River Marina. Mm-hmm. And he uh, talks. Uh, it's a daily account of what he runs into and how he, he does his business. And he even says, you know, I'm not going to buy a Mercedes anytime soon. <laughs> I'm making enough to sustain. Mm-hmm. And um, he talks about the fact that um, what's so interesting is the the lake is never the same day to day and he fishes well into December as a matter oh, of fact uh, yeah. I even called him up I, I figured you know what's the harm you can find his number for all fisheries mm-hmm. and I called him up to see if I could volunteer to see what a day in the life would be even if it means going to his fish house and flaying out fish or sure. boxing fish or anything like that but he's got certain they call them sets Okay, so certain sets they have uh, certain uh, locations that are agreed upon that they fish regularly. They still measure depths and fathoms, so six feet. A lot of that maritime language is so in your face, you tend to overthink it. But he said, well, fathoms make sense because what a fathom is six feet is what's the average arm span of a, of a fisherman is. Okay. He'll talk about uh, some days he'll have three herring, other days he'll have 200 pounds of herring, doesn't he? It all depends upon current, and he talks about the fact that commercial fishing is a lot like farming. However, <laughs> you don't wake up one morning and your corn has somehow moved five miles away. Would <laughs> <laughs> certainly make farming more interesting. That's, uh... Yeah, right. <laughs> without a doubt. Well, I wonder too if they've got like uh, monikers, you know, names for certain. I'm sure they do. I mean, certain stretches of the water. I was. I was looking through this article from uh, about Mississippi commercial fishery, fishing oh, yeah. uh, on, the, on the Mississippi, and, and even fewer license types going out to fisher people on, on, on the Mississippi. It's a, a even more rapidly diminishing business. One part in this article it says, "Growing up around the old river rats." This guy's name was George Rickman, and uh, he learned learned the river and its neighborhoods: blacksmith slough, the hole, the upper backyard. He's watched islands come and go, you know. I mean, in the river, I suppose they erode away over time and new ones arrive, but I just loved it. And, and some of the, the names of some of these people I knew was just right up your alley, you know. Then men made a living on the river. Ted Coba, Brownie Coolis, Ray Martin, Skinner McIlvray. These guys oh. made their living on the, on the Mississippi looking for the rough fish. 
you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and, it, you know, that's, that's an interesting piece too, uh, Captain, you were talking about this guy, three herring one day and, you know, 300 pounds the next, depending on, yeah. on how the lake behaved. And, and I, I found right now that those that are doing commercial fishing, uh, on Superior are limited to the following species. There's lake trout, although uh, Halmer made it sound like they kind of came and went. Like they're not quite what they used to be. Somebody on the smelt. And then Cisco's. That always struck me as kind of a, almost more of a Wisconsin term. Maybe it's a North Shore term as well. I'm not sure. Cisco's. I don't. I don't know a lot about Cisco's. But uh, chubs, alewives, lake whitefish, round whitefish, pygmy whitefish, rainbow smelt, and rough fish. Ooh. And uh, one of these river gents was saying, "No, that's that's where the money is right now. Is in rough fish, sheep's head, buffalo head." And uh, carp, because they're they're all the rage in foreign markets. Hmm. Oh. So digging up the nets out of the the muck of the backwaters of the Mississippi and these big slow moving carp. And it's a story out of Trempolo. It was the Lacrosse newspaper. Um, but he says uh, his fingernails are blackened from years of abuse. He has no feeling in his left middle finger since spearing his hand on a carp's serrated dorsal fin. His 24 foot plate boat was built for a ferryville angler who later drowned. So he took over this guy's boat and has since, since, you know, through hard work, he's got black fingernails, no feeling in the middle finger of his left hand. Taking oh. on a dead man's boat. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's got to be some, some bad juju there. We're going to, going to sea in a dead man's boat. It sounds like something out of Captain's Courageous or something. It's just <laughs> yes, crazy. It just crazy. But, wow. Uh, Fud question? Anything coming to mind at this point? Or I'm, I'm kind of running roughshod here. I apologize. Well, this has been fascinating, but I want to get into uh, uh, Captain Dave's uh, great, history and, great. and be, becoming a captain. Yes, yes. And uh, a noble seaman. And of course, you know, we were we were just thinking uh, commemoratively of the the 29 that went down on the Fitz on the on the 10th, 45, 40, 45th, 45th anniversary. My goodness. And uh, what came up, of course, as as uh, Captain Dave Stricker often does in our shows, is that you had your uh, an adventure going across Superior for what? what was, you remember the it's name? Like a rough weather test, yeah, right, Cap? Where and you got and you got in on some of Halmer's forty foot smoke. Oh, 30, 40 feet high. You said it was a pea super. You were going across in a pea super. But fog. maybe that's uh, should we start more in the beginning, like the humble beginnings of when you wanted to Want sail? To sail, get your gumi. What is it that led you there? You know, I, I grew up in Anoka, which is, you know, Anoka is a town that you drive through in order to get to your cabin. So <laughs> uh, it was a great place to uh, grow up. And at the time, you know, if you were a boy and you liked to fish and you, you liked to be outdoors, that was a great place to be. And um, you get a taste for, I remember buying a, small fishing boat, you know, with the lawn mowing money and you know, when you're 13 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the transom was gone. You remember the old Alumacrafts where the wooden transom was on there? Yep. And uh, you asked somebody where the grass has grown well over the top of this overturned Alumacraft and said, <laughs> well, how much do you want for it? The guy comes out in his t-shirt with stains on the front says, well, how much you got, kid? And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, you know, how about a hundred bucks, which is about seventy-five more than I had, and and um, said that it's yours, but you got to haul it away, of course, which I probably paid too much for. And then uh, ended up talking my dad into getting that, and then um, that was kind of the the motivation to get out in as much water as I possibly could when I was that age. Uh, my parents were game. Uh, you know, I'm sure the alternatives were otherwise, but I mean, the kid wants to go fishing, let him go fishing. So right. I think what also was attractive, you know, when you're 18, you don't think about college in, in terms of actually going to school. You think about uh, its sense of place. Mm-hmm. And the purity was certainly that. And um, in my time that I'd have, and I think they still do, Wednesday night races. So if you go up there on a Wednesday night, you're going to see... 24-foot J-boats that uh, come out each night and do races out uh, right underneath the bridge and in the harbor there. Okay. I would always like to go down there and you know, volunteer to from time to time to let volunteers on board during those races. And, and uh, that's kind of where the bug hit. And then um, 
before you know it, a real job happens and such. And I stumbled on this opportunity out of uh, Superior Charters in Bayfield. And there was an opportunity before kids. My wife and I uh, ended up taking a three-day course to get charter licensed. And what it was was this kind of gruff old captain. Captain Dave was his name. He's still there. I remember this seasoned captain took my wife and I out. We couldn't be any more green <laughs> and led us through the steps on a 30-foot saber, uh, which was a beautiful boat, mid-70s fiberglass sloop rig boat. And he would lead us through about eight, 10 hours of instruction every day. And in the evening, he would assign us homework, which was just, if you, if you like charts and you like being on the water and you like boats, being able to sit at the end of the day and just absolutely sun-drenched, wind-blown and be able to use the spreaders in order to chart a course for the next day as your assignment. Wow. That's, there's no better homework. Right, mean? right. So we would get up the next day and do some maneuvering and then docking and different tacking maneuvers and what jibe was and lots of the, you know, that what's so wonderful and romantic about the vocabulary of sailing and maritime, you got to use in real-time terms. You know mm-hmm. I mean? I remember saying at one point, um, yeah, I haven't been able to find the map. And the, uh, the captain said, uh, well, I suppose not. There's not a map on the boat. <laughs> Get the charts out. I don't know. You learn the idea that a rope is a rope until it's assigned to duty. Right. The idea that uh, the it's an anchor road once it's attached to the anchor as, as opposed to a rope and a painter on a painter that attaches to the dinghy and and running rigging as opposed to standing rigging and things like that. So. Yeah, if you're in love with the vocabulary, that's 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 the gateway. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been doing that consistently for 20 years, as opposed to first time last summer. Uh, we did not go sailing last summer, and that was dearly missed by family and uh, and not to mention the folks that we that I get to go with. Right, right. But yeah, going back to the heavy weather course uh, a handful of years ago, about two or three years. Uh, there's an opportunity to take what's called a heavy weather course where initially you, you start out in Bayfield and you head across the lake. It usually goes between three and four days. You sail out of Bayfield and then you make your way presumably to Grand Marais. Okay. The object is is to take it either early in the spring or late in the fall where you actually have to deal with with weather. Right. And our boat was a 42-footer, a Genoa. Okay. It's surprising, you know, the, those feel so large when you're sitting at the dock. And I know you know what I'm talking well, about. Even, even out in the Apostles, you feel like you're on an aircraft carrier. It's, it's, yes, we, we jokingly but, referred to it as the, the RV. It's like, man, we're in this huge, <laughs> huge boat. This is crazy. But then you get out on yeah. Getchigumi, and uh, I'm, at, I'm gathering you, you probably feel rather small. Yeah, as soon as you see the islands actually fade behind you, and there's no sense of land. Oh, boy. The boat shrinks remarkably. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we were able to move pretty swiftly uh, at about 10 knots, which is just probably a, in, in the teens relative to miles per hour, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you have every stitch of fabric flying and, and the boat making the sounds that it, it does... And when it's so, you know, when you have decent wind and everything's really nice and tight, mm-hmm. kind of moving along and just enough heel to let you know that the physics are working in your favor. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's, it's pretty powerful. And the nice thing is you, you do stay up uh, into twilight and into the evenings and you do pull uh, watch in the evening, which is interesting. You, The fact that you're out of sight of land um, really makes you dial in on the importance of the instruments that are on there which are even more intriguing once you've lost all bearing yeah and learning to trust the you know the compass and the chart and and then coming upon you know a orbit out of nowhere right you know you think about the Edmund Fitz and you think about the orboats that are such a part of that area up there and you you actually see one out in the wild so to speak <laughs> uh, yeah. More breathtaking when they're out in the middle of the lake for some reason. I don't yeah. know why that is. But. 
Yeah, and the idea that the sailboat has the right of way when your fellow sailor is a is a motor sailor, that doesn't necessarily work when you're trying when you're navigating with a, an oarboat. It's got to almost feel like when you out, nothing but water, and then you see that big oar carrier, and it's almost like spotting Moby Dick or something. It's like, oh my God, look at the size of that thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's so odd because you see them. You make any kind of trips up to Duluth, you see them so often they right. almost to see every day but when you see them like you say out in the big water in their element they there's something awe-inspiring about oh, it for sure. well, and probably a little terrifying being in that 42 footer just thinking you know there's nothing but water out here and there's a lot of distance between us but it's almost like you're magnetically drawn to this thing it's like yeah how do we stay out of its way you know yeah and they're not turning anytime soon oh gosh no <laughs> yeah you're not stopping an orbo I mean, there's no throwing the props in reverse on an oarboat. You know, it's it's going to, maybe they can cut speed or something. I'm not sure. But what do you suppose would happen? I mean, did that go through your head uh, out there, Cap, when you were? I don't like, know. How it, yeah, it's hard not to. I mean, you know, when they're so immobile, but the electronics on modern day sailboats are so wonderful. Yeah. Where you start to see that off in the distance. And oddly enough, you know, you just want to steer clear of it. But at the same time, you kind of want to get near enough to have a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be hard not to. And, and yeah. I would imagine they're drawing enough of a wake. It could be kind of dangerous having to go behind it. Right, right. Yeah, you, and especially if you hear that kind of, you can hear that cranking, especially as you get a stern of those things, you can hear that engine moving. Right. Those huge props are really making some power. So wow. not to mention the undertone. Well, and I, and I would wonder, I mean, a 42-foot sailboat, that was, that was a question I was going to ask, is if you're headed under the big water. I mean, it's one thing to, and it was always impressive to me, you know, the years that, that you were kind enough to take me along on those trips out through the Apostles. Yeah, it still felt like pretty big water, and, and if you went over, it's cold enough that you better get out quickly, you know. Um, yeah. But there's land all around you, and there's other sailors, and there's all kinds of this. But I, all I could think was, like, Okay, so we're on a 36-foot. Would you dare take a 36-foot out onto the big lake? You know, and I know it can be done. I mean, Jerry Spies sailed a 10-footer across the Atlantic. You know, he's, he's from my hometown. You know, he was, he was the local hero slash psychotic that was like, what's he going to do? You know, and, and they ran his, his float through town, you know, after it was all <laughs> said and done. And there's his, there's his little walnut of a sailboat that he went across the Atlantic in, you know, this kind of thing. But I'm thinking, yeah, it can be done, but would you feel safe in anything smaller than, say, a 42-foot? I mean, what what is the typical size of a sailboat to be out on? I think the average minimum is about 30. Okay. Uh, and then the top ends tends to be kind of the mid-40s, which, as you just described, I mean, that mid-30s is is a comfortable capable especially in the right hands terribly capable sailboat that will really go and do anything you would probably want to throw at it but that said i think folks that want to make that trip and there's plenty that have done it are just uh really choosy about the times of year that they try to attempt it right right well now on your on your heavy weather trip you were sent out into a pea super you were sent out into the the lake that smokes, you said, 40 feet of, of fog. And that was that was kind of socked in the whole way across, right? It was. Um, we Right as we kind of made our way outside of the Apostles, you could start to see the fog start to form. And then, essentially, it wasn't rough enough. It, it wasn't rough by any stretch. So we were able to keep full sail up, and we even ran the motor from time to time to even make up more time. Mm-hmm. And um, what was what was fun about it was the fact that you couldn't see anything. But also, as you're out on Lake Superior, and you're still moving along under sail power, which is actually kind of quiet, the entire boat becomes kind of a wash and mist. So it's like everything is wet. So okay. uh, you have your you have your rain gear on, but it's not really raining. Right. And you have every stitch of clothing on, but it's still probably in its mid forties. Mm-hmm. But everything is kind of damp because of the because of that mist. You really get a feel for what Lake Superior feels like, and to a certain degree, you know, if you've been up there enough, it, it, Lake Superior has a certain smell to it. I don't mm-hmm. know if uh, mm-hmm. you can identify with it, but I mean, it does have that kind of 
fresh, clear water sea kind of smell to it. Right. And, Inland uh, sea, yeah. Yes, no kidding. And as we went through there, uh, what was fun was the communication back and forth between boats out there was, was even more pronounced because you know people were trying to maintain contact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were making your way across, sure. which is which is really fun. And also it kind of mitigated that uh, feeling of being alone. There was really no mistaking that you were responsible for your own well-being, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Which I think is somewhat of the allure to to doing that is the fact that you are taking a certain amount of risk. And it's funny, uh, as I was reading this small book by Stephen Dahl, that uh, Knife Island book, uh, he even makes this connection as he goes out in the boat, in his skiff when he fishes. And he says that people say, you know, why do you have to pick such a dangerous profession? Mm -hmm. I mean, why do you risk yourself going out onto the water to, to in such an unforgiving and perhaps un, unpredictable setting. And he said, why in the world would you drive a two-ton SUV at 75-mile-an-hour traffic on a daily basis? Yeah. <laughs> work every day with kids in it. Why would you take that risk? Sure. So his notion of everything is, is relative kind of captures why I think that's sometimes an allure to folks when you – get out on the water. As a matter of fact, uh, Dick Kahlo, one of the owners of Superior Charters, would often talk about the fact that one of the things that people regularly, the sailors that usually come back to sailing on a yearly basis is the fact that um, once you're out, you're out. I mean, you're not getting back anytime soon. Right. I know you've felt that feeling before where we've spent eight hours at five, six knots, yep. uh, we're not getting back Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah. where are we dropping so, anchor tonight? Because we're not getting anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, and, and even more importantly, have you kept track of where you're at? If you know how to anchor so you're not going to slip the anchor? Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you know how, to, how the boat swings around in the event, in the likely event, the wind will switch in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. You know, how does the boat swing and the folks that are attracted to that kind of area and likely to your podcast are the folks that uh, appreciate that sense of um, self-preservation and the idea that being responsible for yourself is part of the attraction. Self-reliance. It's, it's, yeah, right. it's all on your shoulders, right? Yeah. That pea super you went through. And my question would be, are, are they following you? I mean, is it is it a case that you know the people know you're out and if if things were to get fairly nasty they they dispatch the coast guard or is it sort of a nope nope um well within reason uh with that particular trip the charter that this goes out of they actually have a boat that's owned by the charter company that's got you know i think it's got twin 250s on it it's either a grady white or a whaler right it's meant to you know, deal with a little bit of running aground, for example, if somebody sticks the keel in some sand or whatever, mm-hmm. or the anchor slips or somebody's, you know, something's not working on a, on a boat or whatever, they can kind of deal with that. But, for example, if you're out in the middle of the larger part of the lake, that's when you start to realize that marine radio channel 16 is a good thing to have. And that's why <laughs> it's important to keep off that channel 16. <laughs> yeah. Because people are using it in the event in the event that they do run into trouble. So, okay. yeah, yeah. And there's a story that you, I don't know if you remember that story about uh, a kiddo that was on Channel 16 for fun. You want me to just tell that story? Oh, let's hear it. Yeah, I, I feel like that happened to us on an Apostles trip at one point. Yeah, it was. It was. Okay. So there was a, a a kid that was on another uh, boat somewhere. Presumably in the it was in the apostles, and it was in the summer. He kept getting on the channel 16, which is a no-no because it's supposed to be kind of an introduction channel where you can either you hail another boat and then you switch to another channel, sure. another number. Sure. Yep. And um, this kid got on the radio, and he probably sounded maybe early teens. And uh, the kid calls out and started talking to somebody else on the radio, and then. Uh, a reasonable amount of time lapsed and you hear the Coast Guard break in. Channel 16 is reserved for brief correspondence in emergency situations. Please switch to a different channel. And then that was the end of it. 
then probably later uh, the same kid jumps back on and does the same routine uh -oh. and this time the, the coast guard got a little bit more assertive and let less time go by and said you're currently on channel 16 please switch to a different channel and that was the end of it and then he got back on again <laughs> And less time was allowed to elapse. And the Coast Guard said, you're currently on channel 16. You need to exit the channel. Please end now. Right. And that, that was the end of it. And then the kid got on again. <laughs> and the Coast Guard got on and said, we have a fix of your location. We will be arriving there within minutes. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, wow. He even gave the kid a visit. Yeah, prepare to be and boarded. The parents of the kiddo probably uh, were given a stern uh, lesson on, right. the, on the necessity of Channel 16. Right. So. Well, and what well, was the kid talking about, too? It was like, uh, yeah, this other sailing boat went by, you know, there's babes on it and uh, <laughs> trying to get a fix on it. You, you know where they're going? What kind of boat did they have? You know, what was he talking you about? You guys have any beer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Was, yeah, who knows? Probably talking about snacks or ran out of pop or whatever. <laughs> we need more Funyuns over here on the, uh, yeah. you know, ocean breeze. Uh, anybody out there? You're on 16, yeah. son. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's crazy how that is. And I, I would imagine, uh, Captain, if you were, if you were, in need on your crossing during the fog to talk to, you know, the captain of say an oar boat, you'd, you'd hail them on 16 and say, you know, yeah. Hey, just, I'm not sure if you see us, you know, it's 42 footer out of Bayfield and, and, uh, we're, we're within a quarter mile of you. We're going to try to take evasive action, get out of your way here. But just so you know, uh, did you, did you get to talk to any of the, the oar boat captains as you went across or? I didn't, but we could hear them on the radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could hear them uh, back and forth kind of announcing where they're at. What's so wonderful about working boats, you know, these kind of working fishing boats, mm -hmm. they have matter-of-fact relationship with nature. You could hear just kind of in the clipped conversation of working uh, mariners, which mm -hmm. is it has its own kind of beauty in itself, where right. everything is broken down into what exactly, what is the essence of what needs to be said. Right. Yeah, and a not paucity only just, of words, yes, which I think is an art in its in and of itself, but it's also I think it's an art born of years of making sure that uh, you're not only clear but you're extremely concise. Right, right. <laughs> Clarity, yeah. brevity, and focus. The mariners. <laughs> oh, that's outstanding. So now on the uh, mm. the pea super on your heavy weather ride or sail, excuse yeah. me. Um, I'm I'm wondering. Well, how many ways can you fail other than, well, he never showed up. It's been eight days now, so fail. Uh, what? Uh, I'm just kind of curious. I was joking last time when we talked about this in the last show. Are there people with clipboards like waiting or in an office? Uh, yeah. How is that judged? I mean, how would you? Yeah, how, how, how would is, you fail? How do you get the, earn the merit of, of? I mean, just making it is one thing, but were there are there other factors? Oh, you mean as far as the, the, the heavy weather course went? Right, right. Yeah, or how do you fail, for one thing? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't well, do it, of course. Yeah. We're just asking. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, well, I think, well, know that there is a, there's a, a Coast Guard captain that's really doing the instruction. Mm -hmm. oh. He's on board. Okay. Oh. So, so he's, so that's what you're paying him for is to kind of, lead you through some of those heavy weather maneuvers. And so you only have a certain amount of time that you, that you have to carry out. You have a destination, which, you know, is usually chosen because of what you can do in mm -hmm. that span of that real estate of water. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you, you have a destination in mind and kind of, it's a great question because what happened was our whole, you know, our whole idea was to make it up to Grand Marais and back in the span of about three and a half days, which actually is kind of trucking. Mm -hmm. And we got out into the lake and reached the Minnesota side almost. And then the wind picked up almost dead out of the northeast. And it was a pretty good clip. I mean, it was well into the 20s as far as knots. Wow. And you know, the shape of the North Shore is basically dead on northeast. Mm -hmm. So we would have had to really beat into which from a sailing standpoint means you actually basically have to tack into the wind all the way up to Grand Marais which oh, wow. would take 
right. and going in the wrong direction almost 100% of the time. So, <laughs> wow. Which was a great lesson because, again, you're on this 42-foot boat, but before long, you're dealing with, which aren't very sizable waves by like superior terms, but dealing with waves that are 8 or 10 feet high that are breaking over the bow, which is a really... The boat's built to take that and then much more, but sure. you definitely feel that the power of looking into those kind of greenish, clear waves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not stopping. Right. Yeah. They're not even breaking yet. Those are just the swells, you know, right. and you are humbled so quickly, which again is the fear, but also the kind of thrill of that kind of power of nature. You make the decision of, well, it's fine to say, well, we'll turn around, but actually turning around is a maneuver in itself when you're trying to maneuver that footage of boat around in eight to 10 foot seas Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And knowing that eventually you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be taking, you have to time it in such a way that you want to take a minimum of those waves broadside. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's not comfortable or safe. So it's those kind of decisions where you come back around and all of a sudden are really jibing with the wind behind you. And that's a whole other experience where um, all of a sudden it feels like you have no wind because you really are sailing with the wind. It's actually still where you are now, uh, which is a whole other sense. So, but yeah, I mean, back to your question about, well, how do you fail? I mean, uh, the nice thing, there is a captain there, but the captain is, only so good as the the crew that he's with and in this case it was a it was him from a female captain standpoint there's some remarkable ones that that charter uses as well but um when you're out there with them they rely as much on you as they do uh, as you do on them so it's it's definitely a, an event where you feel part of a team even though you're out there as part of a course that you're being a part of so right yeah make it back and then we ended up essentially blowing into the silver bay marina if you've ever been up that way uh which is uh, gorgeous in itself and a very much a a working marina as far as fishing goes Mm -hmm. and um you get in there and you don't realize how kind of tired and weather beaten you are until you actually put the boat in the slip and you step off (laughs) the dock feels pretty good but everything else is really still bobbing oh yeah oh yeah yeah I remember that well, getting off the boat after three days, and and we weren't in anything to speak of, maybe four-foot swells at the worst, and still feeling like you're moving from side to side for the next eight hours. You know, sitting in a car, heading back to the Twin Cities, kind of going, why am I still moving? This is is nuts. Fudd, did you have some other thoughts you were throwing out? We've kind of taken a fair piece of the captain's time here. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just great. Thanks for, like I say... I appreciate you letting me be part of the fun. Oh, without a doubt. Without a oh, doubt. Yeah. I mean, you've got, I think, a storehouse, more stories we might, we may even tap into again in future if you're willing. Oh, yeah. Greatly appreciated. And, and I'm, I'm, I am always impressed and slightly awed by your sense of I'm, I want to see what it's like to live, get out there and really take this stuff on, where I think a lot of us sort of, uh, dare I say, sofa sailors kind of sit there and think about it and maybe throw a copy of the dvd master and commander in and go wow that sounds wonderful you know or the perfect storm or something and then go eh, maybe not <laughs> maybe yeah not, but two you... two hours fishing on a choppy lake osagas <laughs> was about the extent of my adventure i remember dreaming of waves that night but yeah hearing you talk about being a superior like that and burying rails and well, lashing yourself all that kind of stuff suddenly it makes sense though when you said Dave, that you do have a, a Coast Guard skipper with you as part of the team. That probably made you feel a little more... Well, that makes sense, because I was yeah. thinking, like, well, right, FUD, because you wouldn't send out a student driver getting their license right. without anybody in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you crash, you fail. Right. I, I never even thought that you'd have a... You're getting your 18-wheel license. Here's the keys. Good luck. <laughs> tell, tell, give us a call when you get to Anchorage, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I doubt that would be the case, but... Uh, Wow, interesting. Well, it would give a whole different meaning to cabin country if we actually took cabin country sailing. Yeah. Oh, oh that'd, that'd be fascinating. Hey, that'd boy, be let's... fascinating. As, as a veteran of a few of those journeys, I, would, I will endorse it heartily. And uh, 
you know, knock on a Formica tabletop here. I'm, I've, I've been lucky in my trips that uh, that you know five to six foot swell we sometimes see that's that thus far has yet to start uh, putting my innards in a commotion. But I know a lot of our a lot of our fellows have uh, hove to dare we say uh, on the water, and it's it's changed some thoughts. But it's uh, it's a great trip. It's a wonderful trip. Have some fish breaths. Have a fish breath. <laughs> <laughs> the classic mm. tale. I think we shared that one on the show at one point. How one of fish our brats? crew members was allergic to fish, but brought fish, fish bratwurst, and uh, that doesn't ring a bell. Oh that man! Disgusting. And then and then the next morning was still was was feeling seasick because of the motion. And and rule one: if you're feeling seasick, get out from under, get up and see the horizon, breathe the fresh air, get on deck. And we could not convince this young lady to get out from under. She was going to stay in that cabin. Oh, okay. Now it is and ringing a bell. Yeah. <laughs> she finally did come up, and and she had some of these leftover, day-old, cold fish bratwurst. <laughs> and there's the, Captain Dave hanging onto the wheel. I think you had a coffee mug in front of you on the wheel in one hand and this kind of flopping, wobbling fish <laughs> brat in your hand. Hey, good morning. How about a cold fish brat? <laughs> Down she went again. We lost her again. And every oh, Captain, come on now. That was, how about an, and then we just shortened it up to F brat. How about an F brat? What do you What do you think? <laughs> oh hey, boy, yeah. Was, that, uh, I don't think we saw her aboard. That was that was a one and done. Yeah, she was. <coughs> yes. That was that was enough. That that wow. cured her. The F brats and the and the motion of the water. That that was enough. But uh, all right. Well, thank you much, Captain. And you have a wonderful evening, and and thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. Sounds good. The Gas Station Podcast Network is proud to announce our newest feature, a cooking segment to enjoy while you fill your tank or check the pressure on your ATV's tires. Cabin Cooking with the Parents. This week's cooking with the parents' recipe, frosted sandwich loaf. Sometimes there's a big family event happening at the cabin or the lake place, and you need food for a crowd. Try frosted sandwich loaf. Start by pre-ordering several white bread unsliced Pullman loaves from your favorite bakery. Cut several slices lengthwise down the Pullman loaf. Next, mix up a batch of your favorite ham, tuna, or chicken salad and then spread the layers of bread with roughly a half-inch layer of meat salad. Put a layer of bread on top and repeat the process until you have a layer cake of white bread with alternating layers of ham, tuna, or chicken salad in between each bread layer. Once the loaf is assembled, frost the loaf with a frosting made of equal parts softened cream cheese, mayonnaise, and sour cream. Decorate the loaf with a pattern of thinly sliced rings, thinly sliced... Once the loaf is frosted, decorate the loaf with a pattern of thinly sliced rings of green olive stuffed with pimento. Green olive stuffed with pimento. If you're feeling really extravagant, lay out a lattice pattern. <laughs> if you're feeling really extravagant, lay out a lattice pattern between the olive slices with anchovy please. <laughs> Man alive, how eyes will pop at this sight of this buffet heavyweight. Cut individual slices of the loaf. For your chest. <laughs> and be <coughs> cut individual. Sorry, folks. I, Lloyd's gotten into the laughing gas. And <laughs> uh, okay, cut. Welcome back. Uh, gosh, it sounds like Lloyd was having a little difficulty there. I hope he doesn't get a call from his agent Lloyd, uh, saying that uh, GSPN is a little upset with his... He's appeared to be having some problems tonight, Lloyd. I guess so. Well, we all get a little tongue-tied, don't we, I guess so. Here? Don, I was hoping maybe you could help him out there. <laughs> good old Lloyd, you know. Good old Lloyd. Good old Lloyd. Yeah, we hope to hear more from good old Lloyd. Indeed. We've... Well, another big thanks to Captain Dave Stricker. It was great to hear all those stories. Captain, good to have him on the show. So, uh, 
kind of hungry for a fish brat. How about you? Yeah, nice cold congealed f brat. <laughs> Nothing combat seasickness fud like a wow. That yeah, room temperature greasy fish brat. I can't think of anything worse. Oh than- my gosh. Wow, waving it under the face of the victim. <laughs> this will help. How about an F brought? It's funny because Dave seems like like the nicest guy in the oh, world. Without so a doubt, for was... him to be teasing with the... <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't help himself. I mean, you know, I, I no slam to the individual, but it was like, you know, we've told you point blank. You come up on deck, you look at the horizon, you breathe fresh air. Oh no, 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 I can't. I'll stay. Well, how about an F brought then? How about you <laughs> wobbling that? Greasy link, ugh, crazy. Wow, good to good to have the captain back on on board tonight, and uh, I know he'd been looking forward to it, and we were looking forward to having him. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Great I know tales. he's a fan of the show. You and bet. I'm sort of in awe of his adventures. Oh, on no, no task. On the big lake. No task too great for the captain. He'll, he'll take it on. Excellent. And all those great kind of insights from the. North Country? Help me out here, Fudd. I, it's I'm, the I'm doing North, it again. North Shore. North Shore Commercial Fishing Museum. That's right. I, I said this earlier. I keep getting my merds wixed on this one. I, <laughs> I, I kept referring to it as the Minnesota Commercial Fishing Museum, but it is, in fact, the North Shore Commercial Fishing Museum right up there, right up there off Highway 61, Tofty, Minnesota. Right. Well worth the stuff. Well worth the stuff. Excellent. Well, I, I suppose we should... Listen for that cabin door shutting. and Right. Enjoy yet another pull off some hot mitts as the fire right. rolls. And the cabin door slams shut for another evening here on Cabin Country. We hope you'll join us next time for our next episode. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.